Hello, I'm Stacy Kaliabakos. And I'm Andrew Buck. And we are both current students at the College of the Holy Cross, working as research associates for the New England Classical Journal, or NECJ for short. Today, we will be interviewing Professors Libatica and Machado, the Holy Cross Classics Department, about their recent article, Lector Intende Litaberis, a research-based approach to introductory Latin. Professors, would you mind just briefly introducing yourselves to us? Oh, sure. Hi, um, I am Daniel Lubitica. I'm a visiting assistant professor of classics here at Holy Cross. And uh, I'm Dominic Machado, and I am an assistant professor of classics at Holy Cross as well. Um, welcome to you both. We're really excited to be interviewing you today, and we really enjoyed your piece. Um, we read it over fall break, and it was really fun to read. Um, so we just wanted to have a very chill discussion about um, your research project. Um, so just to open up, uh, we'd like to talk about what kind of response that this has gotten from the classics community. Uh, Professor Cedar told us that it's been downloaded over 200 times, which is really impressive. Um, so what, have, what kind of response have you gotten at Holy Cross and just at large and have other professors been receptive to your approach? So this is a great question. I think um, one of the things that's great about working at Holy Cross is that um, we get to actually put this into practice. So um, Daniel is putting this into practice in his Greek courses, and I'm putting it into practice in Latin 101. And what I can say is I've been really pleased with how my colleagues have reacted and responded to the piece. Um, but I find that they come up with new and different questions to ask that I hadn't previously thought of. So um, and I think this is something that goes with any good piece of research is that we're constantly open to asking new questions, getting new data, and finding out more. Um, so I've been interested to hear from my colleagues what things they thought worked well, what things they would do earlier or later, depending on what they found. So I found the discussion with colleagues to be really um, particularly meaningful for me. And then even outside of the context of, uh, of our colleagues here at Holy Cross um, as well, I mean, this piece went through a few different, a few different stages, um, including um, a presentation of it um, at the Kane Annual Meeting in 2020. Um, even in the Q&A session for that presentation, I mean, there, there was a lot of really great response saying things like, we should, be, we should have been doing this all along. We should have been um, thinking about topics like frequency and vocabulary and things like that um, in this way all, all along. Um, even the reviewer for the um, for the article said something to the same effect. I'm um, like, this is a great approach um, that more classrooms should be incorporating. So I think the response has been generally positive. Um, and I think that um, the way that our students who've been through this um, process um, have been learning Latin and applying what they what they learned in Latin 101 and 102 um, are really testaments to that. Yeah, and, and Daniel can really speak to this because he's taught the 213 class that has had our Latin 101 and 102 students in it. So he's been able to see kind of firsthand how they've um, been able to develop their language skill and deploy it at sort of the more advanced level. And if I'm correct, it was my group of Latin, introductory <laughs> Latin students that this came, um, came into fruition with. Um, and my group of Latin introductory students was also the group that was hit by the pandemic the first semester. How has this approach to teaching conformed to the pandemic's mm -hmm. um, 
wild um, change of things. Um, and how has it been coming out with that um, system of teaching after the pandemic as well? I think that from a purely pragmatic um, standpoint, I mean, the way that we approach it in terms of technology, the way that we approach it, um, it sort of, our switch from in-person to remote, I guess was a little bit less impacted than it could have been um, if we had been relying on older forms of like, you know, paper, textbooks and, and things like that. Um, we got very familiar with Google Forms, we got very familiar with um, uh, website creation and things like that. Um, so I think from a purely technological standpoint, um, our switch to remote went as well as it could have, but we definitely lost a lot of things that we normally do in in, in, in a person classroom. Um, I love using whiteboard walls on the classrooms um, to like create paradigms and, and work through things. Um, I love like having students work in groups that breakout rooms in Zoom just don't really capture as well. Um, but I think that um, by the time that we went remote in the second semester, um, we had already built enough of a rapport amongst our, amongst our um, classes that uh, we just relied on that to help us out. Yeah, and, and um, I agree with a lot of that. And I think the one thing I would add is in terms of assessment, um, thinking about what we're testing or assessing students on is um, something that had to shift, right? Um, how do you test whether students memorize their forms when they're sitting in a Zoom room alone and have access to computer things? And, um, you know, one of our impulses is we need to make sure that students memorize things. And you'll, you'll hear every Latin teacher say that. So the pandemic was really a test to see what happens if we don't have students memorize things and also apply this new paradigm. And I think um, there were some successes and some failures. Like I think um, students certainly learned to recognize things. Students learned how to translate things. We could ask more complex activities out of students, but maybe we could say something that the, that, um, the ease of producing a form, if I said, produce the third person singular perfect active indicative, right, might not be as easy for students in the pandemic environment as it is for in class. And um, this semester, and, and Professor Libatike and I have been talking, we were talking about this on the way over, thinking about how we apply some of the lessons we learned from the pandemic, like taking more deeper analytical second order skills and emphasizing those more versus memorization. And it made us really think about what the role and what the purpose of memorizing something in the classroom is. And I think that's something that I'm thinking about. I'm still thinking about how do we assess it? What way do we want to actually assess it? Does it mean something that someone can write out a paradigm? Or is it more important that they could recognize a form and tell us what it is? How are those skills interrelated? And so that's something I've been thinking through personally and trying to sort of advance and push forward on. And we didn't really touch on the article, but I think it was something that was sort of underneath there in the subtext. Yeah, and I think within the article, there, there's there's the kernels of that idea, um, in particular when we're talking about the approach um, of thinking about what concepts to emphasize or what vocabulary to emphasize, right? If we're talking about building familiarity with these concepts, then it's less about go home, memorize this um, chart, and then come back and, and regurgitate it back at us the next day. It's more about, okay, let's expose you to this idea over and over again until you can't help but think about it. Yeah. Um, so um, being less about, being less prescriptive about um, those kinds of memorization things um, and focusing more on the, the process, I think uh, was one of the biggest um, lessons that we took away from the pandemic. Yeah, and, and I, I found too that 
my students tend to love when I talk about process because that's something they can take and apply. If I say, here's a form, memorize it. Well, that, you know, memorize is a complex process that happens or doesn't happen and has many different parts. So if we can actually talk about how we can go about it, why we need to do it, then that kind of helps us to move beyond the simple um, grammar translation model we were trying to move away from. And now to get into something a little more nitty-gritty about the article itself, something that I found really interesting was your approach to have students learn uh, the third singular and plural verb forms at first. So that was really interesting to me. I learned Latin in middle school at first, and that was not the approach that my professors <laughs> took yeah. at all. Um, so could you go a little bit more into how you developed that idea and how your students have received it? Yeah, so I guess I'll talk about the development and maybe, Danielle, you can talk about the um, how it's been received. So yeah. the development was that we were working with this text, um, the fabuli or the mythologies, the fables of um, Hyginus, and there's a lot of third-person action. Blank did X, right? Um this group of people did why, right? And there was not a lot of first person because the narrator is not an actor in the story. And there was not a lot of second person. There were a few imperatives here or there, but I think it was something like 95% of the verb forms were third person forms. And so like if, less, less than 1% was um, like 0.65% were first person forms. Right, like that. right. So if you're reading a text, right, which... Um, has 95% third-person forms, right? It makes sense to emphasize those forms. And um, one of the things that was pointed out to us by our colleague Neil Smith is that when we talk about Latin, right, and yes, the first-person form and the second-person form are used in certain types of Latin, but we can't generalize about all of Latin literature and how frequently the third-person or the second-person or the first-person show up. We can't generalize about vocabulary. I think we use the example in there that the word consul, which you would think is important to any Latin text, doesn't appear in Ovid's Metamorphoses, right? Something that we find to be, you know, sort of a canonical basic text. So really, when we're looking at teaching students how to read Latin, it's kind of a false um, narrative to say, we're teaching you Latin. We're teaching you to read for a particular text, right? That's so because hygienists happen to be third-person dominant, we thought, okay, we could really prepare the students to learn this idea and be ready to meet it in a text. And on top of that, um, if you think about the way Latin verbs are structured, um, person is probably the easiest thing to pick up, right? Because you have the ending of a verb, right? OST, mustis, enti, right? Or oris term or mini montor, right? So we know how to kind of diagnose that and see that pretty quickly. But the harder things are knowing what those things before the personal endings actually mean, right? What does this vowel shift mean? What does this um, infix, this thing we put in the middle of the verb mean? So focusing on third person allowed us to, allowed our students to concentrate on changing tense voice and mood much more than changing person. Yeah, because when you think about... Um throwing ideas like subjunctive or, um, or uh, passive or things like that at a student, we're always worried about, okay, can they actually understand all six forms within this paradigm before we move on to the next one, right? Um, and that 
places, I think, an undue emphasis on the nitty-gritty and the minutia of it rather than the actual overall concept, which is what we were after, right? What does it mean for a verb to be third person? What does it mean for a verb to be passive? What does it mean for um, a verb to be subjunctive? Um, focusing more on, again, the, the, the process and the content as opposed to the individual nitty-gritty details, um, I think, was key to that idea. Um, and so for that reason, rather than emphasizing those six parts of the paradigm, um, we decided to sort of slice the paradigm in thirds, I guess, rather than, than in half, um, so that we can work with the concepts as opposed to the individual pieces. Um, as Dominic was saying earlier, that there were some successes with that, some failures. Um, one of my most vivid memories um, was actually from, from the year that, that, that I taught your class, Andrew, um, where we spent so much time on the third person that in the second semester, when I put a second person form in one of your translation assignments, almost every single student in the, in the class could not parse it um, because they were so used to looking at third person. Um, so that's to say that um, the idea, I think, is sound. Um, it's just that in terms of scaffolding um, the concept um, and uh, what to expect later on, um, that there were places to grow from there, for sure. Um, but that doesn't uh, mean that we just basically threw um, two forms for every tense voice mood combination at students. Um, you could do something like, have your sixth form, so amo, amas, amat, amamus, amatis, amat, and then bold, amat, and bold, amat, um, so that um, they're important, but you still have the context of what the, the rest of the paradigm looks like. So it doesn't mean necessarily like you will only ever know how to say he, she, it does this, or they do that, um, but uh, we're just focusing more on the concept as opposed to the, the minutia. Yeah, because I remember from that class, and something you said in the article um, was just because, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, um, because you make students responsible for two forms doesn't mean that they can't learn or mm -hmm. be exposed to the other forms. Exactly. Um, so I remember in my own experience, seeing amo or um, whatever other form in the first or second person, and it's like in the back of your head just mm -hmm. living there, but you don't need to produce it on a quiz or something yet. Exactly. Um, and then that helps later when you're like, okay, I need to actually get this down now. Um, it's there's like semblances of it there mm -hmm. so i couldn't even remember in my experience going back to this class not being exposed to those forms at first because it seemed like they were always there because i had seen them so early in the course we did something right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so that's re actually really interesting andrew and i think one thing we might want to point out too is um latin 101 102 is not only just people who are going to be classics majors but I would say 80% of the class are students who are taking it to fulfill, say, a language requirement. So our focus may be slightly different, right? If we're thinking about how do we give that 80% of the class the best experience possible, how do we train them so that they have this payoff of reading a real Latin text at the end of the semester? Um, sure, would it be nice so that everyone knew every single possible form by the end of the second semester and they could read anything that they wanted, yes, that would be nice, but I think the reality is we have to know that our students have different needs. They want to get different things out of the courses. So focusing on the third person also has a practical perspective of allowing students to have that reading experience without going on to necessarily take the third or fourth semester, not because they don't like Latin, but because maybe they're a double major, maybe they have other conflicts with the course. So, um, so to go back into some specific stuff, about the article, um, something that you've already touched on was this question of vocabulary. So you talked about this uh, corpus-specific vocabulary list or approach that you had. 
Um, did you happen to see any drawbacks with that, or was it mostly beneficial, uh, the experience that the students had with it? I would say pretty beneficial, especially given um, my experiences in the classroom after having that approach. So with vocabulary, um, the basic idea is that um, there's this core vocabulary that um, that if you have 300, 400 words of it, um, then you're pretty well equipped to read a lot of different Latin texts. And then after that, the most frequent words tend to be more corpus specific, right? Um, so words that are specific to um, the fabulae versus Pliny's letters or, or things like that. Um, and because we prioritized those words and we sort of built them out into vocabulary modules that were digestible and, and easier to, to work with, um, I think that students uh, were able to um, ingest them pretty easily. Compare this against um, some textbook approaches um, where you have, say, 25 units in the textbook and each uh, unit has 50 different words. Um, you have five verbs and you have 10 nouns and things like that that um, don't relate to each other in any way whatsoever. Um, students are sent home to memorize them, come back the next day, but they have no way of connecting the ideas um, or just sort of turning them into rote memorization exercises rather than trying to see them in context or understanding what they actually mean. Um, this is um, particularly notable to me when I um, went into teaching um, intro Greek with a textbook um, where students um, got very overwhelmed very quickly mm -hmm. by the sheer list of things that, that they had to memorize um, without any context. Um, they, there was no background like we're trying to read um, the fabulae by the end of the semester um, by when we were using that textbook. So I think um, segmenting it down that way and focusing in on the words that the students are going to see the most, um, the words that are most frequent, the words that are most applicable, the words that are um, going to be ubiquitous and um, that are going to be everywhere, um, I think um, had quite a few benefits for, for our students. Yeah, I, I think that that makes, I, I totally agree with that. And then I think um, one thing we did was we tagged the vocabulary they're learning to the passages that they would read for translation. So they would see it in context. So they would think, oh, I've seen that word. I know what it means. Or I know what words I can connect that with. Um, we have a an in-class joke at the moment about all the verbs in Hygienists have to do with killing. So they know like <laughs> six or seven verbs for to kill. Um, and and, and um, kind of one of the things that's interesting about this is it informs how you teach upper level classes too. Because if you were teaching someone gen a general Latin vocabulary, it might be very different if you're reading Caesar's Gallic Wars and you're reading Virgil's Georgics, right? Two very, very common texts that you might read and you might want to read but they would require very different vocabularies. So I think it's a reminder that when we're teaching intermediate level language or even upper level language, we shouldn't assume that students know these words. We should tag, these are the words that are gonna show up all the time and that you really should be comfortable with, right? And then I use a dictionary when I read Latin texts. I'm sure <laughs> Professor Libatica uses a dictionary. All the time. <laughs> Why can't we have our students look at dictionaries? I think there's a bit of a false idea that you're supposed to open a Latin text and just read it left to right and know what's going on. But we want to teach our students to read slowly, carefully, and understand what's going on, not just to be able to kind of look at words and make sense of it, right? We want them to, it's a process. It took me 5, 10, 15 years to develop my Latin to a level where I feel comfortable reading, and I still use a commentary. I still use a dictionary. Um, so... I think we need to be honest about what we want our students to achieve rather than saying, here's a thousand words you ought to know because this will open up the key to Latin. 
it won't necessarily, right? You can read a, a text and find that those vocabulary aren't particularly useful for you. Yeah, I think the vocabulary question kind of goes hand in hand with things like memorizing verb paradigms or noun paradigms or things like that, right? If in my classroom, I want my students, and I think Professor Machado will agree with this, I want my students to know what their resources are. I want them to know about the processes that they need to go through and the, the sort of the thought process that they need to um, engage in in order to understand this language. Um, that's, to me, far more important than drilling vocabulary or drilling paradigms or things like that. So I think that goes hand in hand with the, with the last questions as well, um, because it's more about the process and it's more about knowing where your resources are and being able to draw on them smartly and effectively than, um, than purely about being able to recall at the drop of a hat yeah. what this word means or what this verb ending is. Right. We want our students to go deep with the text, right? Because yeah. that's why we study these ancient texts so we can spend time and we can sit with them and see what comes from that. If we want to read a translation, we can read it in English, right? Speed reading, I find for something like Latin, isn't necessarily the best object, right? We want to spend time with it, think about it, think about culture, think about language, think about how all those things come together. And I think um, the idea that we have to make our students rotely memorize things is can be harmful at times. And Professor Machado, you drew upon your experience a little bit in that um, last answer. And as, as reading this uh, article, I was um, wondering how both of your experiences influenced mm. um, your um, desire to change how Latin is taught, because you've both been taught Latin, presumably, in a more traditional way before. Um, what are some key things that might uh, stick out in your experiences um, that you saw as um, maybe deficient in your learning or difficult to get through mm -hmm. um, that you particularly wanted to change for your students as you became uh, the teachers yourselves? That's an excellent question. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, a little bit about my journey. I, um, I started learning Latin in high school. Um, I went to an all-boy Jesuit high school in New Jersey where um, you had to study Latin for two years, so freshman and sophomore year of high school. Um, my first year Latin teacher did not teach Latin at all. Um, <laughs> she, she, God bless her, but um, she was very checked out, um, and I didn't really get a good experience in, in that class, um, but I had to go into a second year. My second year teacher um, was very um, on the ball. Um, she, um, but in very much the traditional grammar translation way that we've been talking about, memorize these paradigms, um, learn about this, um, uh, uh, be able to generate um, this noun in this case number and, and things like that. Um, and I think it worked with my brain. Um, I'm a very analytical person. Um, so I think that's why I got hooked on the language and, and got into it. But I found that I was one of the only students to do that. Um, I, I made it up to AP Latin, uh, wherein I was getting really into the minutia of like, this ablative is an ablative of Asian. Clearly, we can see that because of X, Y, and Z. And my, my friends around me in, in Latin 4 were like, really? Okay, sure. Um, so I think throughout my own experience, it's, it's sort of like a kind of a negative example, but like I got a little bit too um, far into the minutia uh, without appreciating um, the larger context or the process. Um, and it wasn't until um, I started uh, teaching, going to grad school and teaching and, and learning about why students want to take Latin in the first place, um, why they want to take Greek in the first place. Um, that I started to sort of let go of um, my own little, um, wanting to cling to the little um, little details and get a, a bigger picture of it. Um, I love paradigms, I love things like that, but but again, that's not why most students are, are coming to, to this language. Um, so I think from personal perspective, it's sort of a negative answer to your question, but um, like I think I, I was a sort of a negative example of, of where Latin can go. 
um, and in terms of making it more equitable, making it more accessible um, to different learning styles and, and, and other things like that. Um, I think that um, that was one of the biggest lessons that, that I uh, took away and that I wanted to bring into this project. Interesting. So I kind of have like sort of an inverse experience. So I also took Latin in high school. And um, my first two years of Latin, I'm not sure how much Latin I learned, but I had a ton of fun learning it. Um, I had a 75-year-old Latin teacher who was this repository of knowledge, not just about things Latin, but like culture and all that stuff. And I just loved being in his classroom. And I took four years of Latin because of that. Now, I didn't know much about grammar. I didn't know much about... Um, I knew the paradigm's okay, but I didn't know, like, if you asked me what an ablative of agent was, I wouldn't have had an idea. So I get to my first college Latin class, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, I don't know what any of these terms mean. You know, accusative respect, or ablative of agent, or, you know, double dative. I'm just thinking to myself, okay, what I'll do is what I did in high school, which is just, I have a very good memory. So I'll memorize the translation to the passage, I'll key myself into the Latin words that do that, and then, boom, we'll put it on there, Right. And I show all of my students, I have this text from Virgil's Aeneid, where I've written, like, the definition of the words. Uh, this is something you should never do. <laughs> above all, every single word in the line. So it's like you can hardly see anything. And um, I was, you know, I did fine in classes, but I wasn't very good at Latin. And so when I had got to graduate school and, you know, I sort of had to actually learn how to read Latin properly... I realized, okay, I've got to pay attention to grammar. I've got to learn a ton of vocabulary. So I learned that way. I went into the details that way. And when I first started teaching, I thought to myself, well, I wish I had been taught that way. I wish I had been given the nuts and bolts approach. I'm going to give that to my students. And it works to some extent, but I think it works for a certain type of student. It works for a student who is ready for that, right? And I wasn't ready for that when I first encountered Latin. And I wasn't ready for that until I got to graduate school. So how do we create an opportunity for more students to engage with the language while also not someone like, you know, Daniel, who's ready for that, giving them the ability to fly too, right? Yeah. And I think um, our different experiences and knowing what works and what doesn't work, right, and what works for us but might not work for someone else is so useful for thinking about how do I reach out and explain to somebody um, what's going on. So one thing I did recently is there's a ton of really good paradigm songs. Um, and I was like, you know what? I've never shown this to a class, but I might as well show it to a class because like, what if there are five people in the class who will watch the YouTube video and get it stuck in their head and now they know Hikai Coke, right? Like, good for them, right? There's no harm in doing that. And I think um, the more we allow ourselves to be intellectually vulnerable and allow ourselves to be open to new ideas or possibilities, the more we become empathetic as a teacher and the better we become as teachers. What you said about the jingles just brought back like a weird memory <laughs> from like sixth grade of like one of my first Latin classes. And I remember my professor or my teacher, she was a really nice woman, Magistra Bella. That was not, that was not her real name. That was like her, oh my God. her Latin That's class epic. stage name. That's her stage name, yeah. <laughs> but she had us like learning the endings for like first and second person adjectives. Uh -huh. And she was like, we're going to chant this and you guys have to stand on your chairs and you're going to like bang it out. Oh my and gosh. like clapping. Had, she had us like dancing like sometimes and like 
at the time we thought it was silly, <laughs> but like I have never forgotten my <laughs> endings ever. Oh my and gosh. like I know people who started Latin in college, and like you're not sometimes your brain isn't like as like you can't adapt as quickly to learning yeah. all these new <clears> things, especially <throat> when you're not used to learning a new language. So I, I, sometimes I would make my friends do that. <laughs> Not bang around on the tables and stuff, but, like, chant it in their head a lot. Um, So going back to that personal experience um, that you guys had, for me, I learned from Lingua Latina Mm -hmm. um, at first, and I know that you guys mentioned that in your paper. I love Lingua Latina. I still have my book somewhere in my house. Um, But can you briefly go into the similarities and differences between your curriculum and that of Mm -hmm. Lingua Latina? I thought that was really interesting that you brought that up. Yeah, so, so lingua latina per se illustrata um, is, it takes a, an inductive approach to the language, wherein basically um, you have these stories that are written entirely in Latin uh, with some marginalia that explains like this vocabulary term um, in Latin, of course, um, or um, illustrates the, um, this grammatical concept, again, in the marginalia, but basically through narrative, through the story. Um, and it's, um, it's meant for you to progress through uh, gain new knowledge of the of the language um, by actually reading the actual language, um, which is a pretty cool approach, um, and and it, and works in um, lots of classrooms. Uh, but our approach was um, quite a bit different in yeah. terms of yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think um, you know there is sort of um, one of the things that I would say similar is we kind of used the inductive approach to sketch out the way we approach things, right? Like we looked at the text and we saw. Well, what's the vocabulary that's there and what's the grammar that's there? And let's teach to that. At the same time, I think there there's um, some different ideas about how long people have to learn the Latin language, right? So if you start learning Latin in high school, you have four years to learn vocabulary. So you can kind of learn a lot of vocabulary that way. Or you have four years to work inductively through a text. So you don't have to go at kind of a breakneck pace. We have what, 80 classes to go through, you know, yeah, exactly, if that, um, to go through all of Latin, like, notionally all of Latin grammar. And that's a lot. It's very high-paced. So inductive learning is excellent if you have a lot of opportunities for repetition, right, where you're seeing this structure again and again, and you can say, okay, we're meeting for 180 days of the year, right, that's double the amount of contact time. So I think an inductive approach and one that might use, say, comprehensive, comprehensible input makes a lot of sense when the students have more time to acclimate to the language, to glean things, to hear things over and over again, right? Um, but we kind of had to pick and choose our battles over the course of 80 classes, you know, um, 28 weeks or whatever, so... Right. And also in terms of frequency, I mean, having class five days a week versus three days a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, all those things that, that, we, that uh, we've talked about before sort of come into, the, come into uh, play with that question as well. Um, so I think that LLPSI is awesome. Um, and we learned a lot from that approach, as well as the other approaches that we talked about in the mm-hmm. article, too. Um, the, the, the different textbooks and the different times at which they introduce different topics and things like that. Um, but um, I, I'd like to think that, um, that what we came up with um, is just a, another entry in, um, mm-hmm. in in the myriad ways that, that one can learn this language. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that's an, a really good point, too, right? That there's a million different ways to skin a Latin cat, right? There, <laughs> um, and different ways work for different people. And I think yeah. um, our hope is just to offer one other way that someone can use and um, 
we're working on, you know, it is open access, but we're hoping to launch it and make it freely available to everybody so that anyone who wants to use it can use it. And that, again, ties into our accessibility thing. So maybe someone will think, hey, um, this sounds really neat. Why don't I learn Latin this way? So. Well, that is certainly very interesting. And maybe we'll see another research study out of that. Very well, very well, May. Very well, May. Um, I, I, I will admit, preparing for this podcast today, I, I reread what uh, what Dominic and I had written. I thought, hmm, maybe maybe there is another piece in this. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. talking yeah. about the Greek side of things. Yeah, that would be very exciting, and we both love to read it. But we don't want to take too much of your time. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this with us today. It's been very fun, and we both undoubtedly have learned a lot. Um, so yeah, thank you. Yes, thank you for joining us. Um, and hopefully you'll be back for another paper someday on, on green language learning. <laughs> Thanks for having us. This has been yeah. a lot of fun. Thank you guys for having us. Thank you for listening to this NECJ podcast. We would like to thank Professors Daniel Libatike and Dominic Machado for joining us. We would also like to thank Mary McLeod and David Banville and the staff of the Multimedia Resource Center at Holy Cross for their assistance with the production of this podcast. We would also like to thank the J.D. Power Center for Liberal Arts in the World for providing the funding to make this podcast possible. The music we used is entitled Just a Waltz by Elena Smirnova from freemusicarchive.com and is licensed under an Attribution 4.0 international license.